Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Yesterday, we learned that Saudi Arabia has iced the initial public offering for its Aramco uh, state-owned oil company. This was arguably the most anticipated IPO of the decade, would have been uh, the largest such company in the world. Joining us now to understand what happened here and what it would take for this IPO to get back on the schedule is Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting, also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and author of a book, Saudi Inc., looking at Saudi Aramco and the family that runs it. Uh, Dr. Walt, thank you so much for joining us. What was your impression when you saw the news that this deal was being iced? My initial impression was that um, this isn't really all that new. Uh, we kind of been hearing for a while that the IPO was stalling, that the plans were not really moving forward anymore, and that basically they were stuck on a political decision of whether or not they want to IPO the company, when the optimum time for that would be, and where. So it doesn't seem like this is really a business or a financial issue more than it's a political issue. If that's the case, then is it more realistic to think that this is off the table at this point, that there will not be an initial public offering of Saudi Aramco? I think it's much more unlikely now than it was, say, a year ago or even six months ago. Uh, when the crown prince was visiting the United States and he was making these rounds, he was visiting London back in, in March and April, this was a huge talking point. Is Aramco going to be listed in London? Will it be listed in New York? Or would it be listed just on the Saudi stock market? And now all of that talk is basically calmed down. Now, there are, there are a couple issues here. One is that um, this is really not a big time for business in Saudi Arabia. The period between Ramadan and Hajj, you know, not all that much gets done. So it's not like we should have been expecting any big decisions to come anyway. But the fact is that it does seem like all of the massive preparations that were going on have just kind of calmed down and basically shut shut down for the present. So uh, basically, the word yesterday was that Saudi Arabia wants to focus more on uh, buying on Saudi Aramco buying a strategic stake in uh, Sabic, the local petrochemical group, and that's the reason for this delay, indefinite delay in the IPO. Do you buy that? Well, I think that that's maybe symptom as opposed to the ultimate reason, because the fact is that the company has said that they're prepared to go forward with an IPO pending a decision by the top, as in the, the king and the crown prince, uh, on where and when it should happen. So the company was ready. They'd had their prospectuses prepared. They'd done their financials. They'd gotten their accounting in order. Um, from their perspective, they were just waiting on the final word. And, and that was something that the, the CEO made clear months ago. Now they've gotten into this deal with Savic, and so it does seem like they're saying that this is the reason for the delay, whereas really the real reason is probably they're not sure if this is the best course of action 
or they're not ready yeah. uh, to make that decision. That makes a lot of sense. One thing that I was wondering is, you know, how much this has to do with the price of oil, given the fact that it has been sort of fluctuating. It did rise substantially, uh, but there seems to be an increasing lack of clarity about how much more it could increase. What's your sense of that? I think a lot depends on what's going to be happening in the next six months, even the next two or three months with the Iran uh, with the Iran sanctions. There seems to be a kind of consensus from a lot of the oil analysts that oil is heading upwards between now and the beginning of 2019, could be going up. Some have even said 80 90 or $100 a barrel, but then they do see prices really dropping again by the end of 2019. They see additional uh, production coming online in the United States and, and other places that would put downward pressure. And it is possible that Saudi Arabia just decided, you know, oil prices are still very volatile. We're going to wait it out. On the other hand, I don't think that whether or not the price of oil is at 60 or 80 is really all that big of a concern for an Aramco IPO. If it was at 30, that would be a different story. So I do want to just talk about the oil market because I know you've been watching it and studying it for years. And, you know, I'm struck by the close tie that crude has had recently to the value of the dollar. We're seeing today the dollar strengthen oil is falling. You pretty much have seen this inverse relationship steadily uh, throughout the past few weeks. Is this going to be the main driver until there is some catalyst? I think that right now we're seeing that the market, the fundamentals in the market are increasingly coming into alignment. So there isn't as much of a cushion in terms of supply as there used to be. And the fact that we're not undersupplied. And um, so, so there's definitely some room, but nothing like there was a year or two ago. And that means that issues like the value of the dollar or geopolitical issues will have a much more uh, amplified effect on the price of oil. So, for example, if we get news in the next two months that another country is cutting its uh, imports from Iran, that could cause oil prices to go up. Or if we get news that, um, you know, another pipeline is coming online in Texas, that could push things down. So given sort of uh, all of the potential tail risks out there, are there more uh, tail risks that will push the price of oil to the upside or to the downside? I think right now, we're looking more at um, at upside rather than downside. Really? I will say, though, in, in terms of what the dollar, the effect of, of the strengthening dollar has, particularly when you look at the effect that it's having on countries like Turkey or India, which are seeing their currencies devalued, that may push them, because these are major oil importers, that may push them to look for cheaper sources of oil because they can't get as much you know, for their, for their currency because the dollar is so strong. And that may, in fact, push them to try to defy U.S. sanctions and purchase more oil from Iran, which Iran is happy to offer either at discounted prices or to accept their currency as opposed to having to trade it for dollars. Mm. In other words, it's not so clear cut that if if the sanctions uh, sort of increase on Iran, there would be an, an exact corollary in a lack of oil kind of coming to market. Right. And some of that does depend on the strength of the dollar vis-a-vis other countries' currencies and whether those countries are oil exporters or oil importers. Thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Dr. Ellen, Dr. Ellen Wald, she is president of Transversal Consulting, also non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, also author 
of a book, Saudi Inc., which takes a look at the history of Saudi Aramco and the family that controls this multi-trillion dollar enterprise. What are we going to eat over the next few years, and how will this reshape the agricultural industry? Joining us now to talk about that is Alan Birga, agricultural reporter for Bloomberg News, coming from our 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. Alan, I loved this piece you pulled together, looking at how tastes are changing. It's such a simple thing, what you decide to eat at each meal, and yet collectively, the decisions made by entire populations will dramatically shift and change uh, the agricultural industry, certainly of America, but worldwide. Can you just give us a sense, first of all, in how tastes are going to be changing over the next decade and uh, what you're basing this on? I think the big consideration to make when looking at this issue is that you have the developed world and you have the developing world. And and this study, which is very much based on a report that the UN Food and Agriculture Organization puts out twice a year, uh, they do forecasts for what they see as demand of different commodities and how that translates to diets, is that the developing world is still very much driving food consumption much more than the developed world. And that's key because it leads to some sort of counterintuitive conclusions. Um, if you take a look at a lot of the concerns about public health, about obesity, the fact that we have more people now dealing with obesity in the world than we have dealing with hunger, you start to think, well, clearly we're going to have probably less meat consumption, we're going to have less processed food consumption, etc. That's not necessarily the case um, because overall global food consumption is not necessarily a first world issue. So you see some changes in terms of more demand for vegetable oil, uh, more demand for sugar, uh, things that you might think we would be moving away from, yeah. but that's only in richer nations. Poorer nations still want some of this stuff, and that's going to be driving gro- global growth. Okay, so uh, but let's just talk about the whole like, concept of developing nations versus developed nations. So what have developing nations really, what have they been uh, consuming most, and what are they going to be consuming in the future? Well, and that's the key distinction about taking a look at the next years, 10 years ahead, because this entire century, you've seen developing world growth very much driven by China. As China has become wealthier, of course, you've seen this massive increase in soybean imports, which has now become a, glo- a global trade story. Um, you know, China has half of the world's pay. And so they've been pushing anything that can be used for animal feed, and they've very much been the driver. That's going to slack off in the next decade. Um, And frankly, China's growth was a unique event that we probably won't see again because Chinese growth is slowing. Uh, There is still growth in other areas. Of course, you will see India overtake China as the world's most populous nation. You see sub-Saharan Africa being the main source of global growth. But they don't eat like the Chinese. Um, Don't expect India to be pushing animal feed demand. I mean, this is a very vegetarian society. Uh, they're going to be having more dairy. Uh, Africa is going to be having more vegetable, sugar-processed foods. As they, as those countries in Africa move up the development curve, they're going to want a more developed world diet, for better and for worse. It's going to be different than what we've seen with China's rise. It's going to be maybe a, a little bit slower curve demand, and it's going to be a demand that grows in different commodities. So this is fascinating to me. So this suggests to me uh, certainly the cheaper pork prices that we've seen. It suggests that that will continue going forward and perhaps uh, even and accelerate if this really does come to pass. And it also has some sort of uh, bearish views on the corn market as well, no? 
It does. And it's very important, again, to remember for perspective about the global agricultural system. Um, of course, there are always supply shocks and disruptions, and projections always look much more smoother than the reality. But when you take a look at what's being expected, we're not expecting large increases in food inflation. It should be fairly mild. And that's because the the world does not have a problem feeding itself. It can create the commodities. Um, sustainability becomes an issue. Uh, distribution becomes an issue. Wealth becomes an issue. But this is part of why I get skeptical when I see all these stories stories about how in 10 years we need to be eating seaweed or bugs or everything has to be grown <laughs> hydroponically. The global food system is feeding people just fine. Um, those aren't the issues involving the global food system. It's about sustainability, environmental issues. It's about whether people have the money to get the food they need or the access to the food they have. Um, the current global food system is doing quite fine feeding people. In fact, some of the problems we've been seeing in markets is that it's been doing too much of a productive job and we've actually seen too much food being shoved down people's throats because it's so inexpensive. Right. And that's something this report underscores as well. All right. So are there any areas where you're going to see demand really dramatically increase? I mean, you mentioned the dairy industry with India. Uh, who benefits from that? What nation provides the milk? So India is going to be a fascinating issue because India is incredibly protectionist in its agricultural policy, and they've been meeting their dairy demand through domestic supply. The feeling is at some point that's just going to give. And we actually saw something similar with China two decades ago, and they just decided they couldn't grow enough soybeans and they were going to strategically rely on imports. If you see that happen in India in the next decade, that is going to be an incredible opportunity for dairy producers. But at this point in time, India is really trying to boost domestic capacity, domestic processing, because, of course, they would like to see that wealth stay internally with their own agriculture sec sector. That's going to be one of the big business questions in the next 10 years. You know, this is such a great uh, conversation to have, especially as these tariffs pick up. You just have to wonder how much this factors into China's calculus here with soybeans. You do have to wonder. I mean, China's an aging society. Its population growth is slowing. It may actually shift into reverse in upcoming years. Um, they would like more domestic capacity as well, frankly. Um, they don't like to necessarily have such a strategically important commodity be dependent on Brazil. Um, U.S. producers, you know, they will change their their production mores with domestic markets as well. You may look back on these these tariffs as sort of a zenith of this particular system. And even if we get rid of these tariffs, the system going forward is never going to look quite like it did before. Alan Birga, thank you so much. That was terrific. Alan Birga, agricultural reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Uh, the Bloomberg reporters put together, including Alan Birga, put together a piece, uh, an infographic. What will the world eat in the next decade? It's pretty interesting. I mean, it just sort of highlights the shift in the developing worlds and the changing tastes and the concept of what really will happen with respect to our agricultural flows. Well, the legal woes of President Trump appear to be deepening, certainly with Michael Cohen, his former attorney, pleading guilty to a number of different uh, issues, including campaign finance uh, misuse. But today, President Trump had a lot of comments on Fox and Friends, including one on flippers. I want to bring in Bob Mintz, who's a partner at McCarter and English in Newark, New Jersey. Bob, I am so glad that you're joining us today, especially given the fact you are a, a former assistant U.S. attorney in New Jersey, as well as uh, assistant counsel to New Jersey Republican Governor Thomas Keene in the 1990s. Bob, I want to read you something that President Trump said. 
For 30 or 40 years, I've been watching flippers. Everything's wonderful. Then they get 10 years in jail and they flip on whoever the next highest one is or as high as you can go. As someone who headed the organized crime division in New Jersey, what was your reaction of that? Well, what I can tell you is that federal prosecutors all over the country rely on cooperating witnesses all the time. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it is unusual for a case not to involve a cooperating witness. And the reason for that is simple, because even cases in which there is strong documentary evidence, you know, for example, the Paul Manafort case had lots of documents showing money being moved from the uh, Russian uh, oligarch who was paying them into these shell companies, and from the shell companies, he was paying his personal finances. You often need an insider, a person who actually participated in the crime itself to take the jury by the hand and explain to them what was going on, and most importantly, what was in the mind of the individual who's charged with the criminal offense, because all criminal offenses boil down to intent. In other words, the person has to know what they're doing and know what they're doing is wrong. So cooperating witnesses are an integral part of federal law enforcement, and it's something that is used all the time. All right. So given that, the fact that President Trump was talking about flippers uh, and in that context said it almost ought to be outlawed, it's not fair. What does that do uh, for federal prosecutors and others who rely on cooperating witnesses? I mean, is this just sort of a flip off the cuff, you know, uh, inflammatory statement, but it's just par for the course with our president or does it have a material effect? Well, it's really the same type of argument that defense lawyers raise all the time. And to reference back to the Paul Manafort trial, it was the central theme of Manafort's defense, that in that case, Rick Gates, his former right-hand person who had been involved intimately in all of his financial dealings, had flipped on him and had cooperated with the government. And it's fair game for the defense to point out that individuals in those circumstances uh, are trying to save themselves, that they are going to get a less sentence. Uh, It's up to the judge at the end of the day how much of a reduction in sentence they may receive, but they certainly are doing it because they believe that at the end of this process they will go to jail for less time or perhaps no time at all, and that their credibility ought to be challenged on that basis. And that's why prosecutors will never go to trial in a case where they will ask jurors to rely on the uncorroborated testimony of some cooperating witness because there's just too much of a motivation for them to perhaps shade the truth in order to save themselves. So those cases will always be cases in which you've got a cooperating witness, but you also have other witnesses and other documents that corroborate and support what they're telling the jury. So jurors don't have to rely on those cooperating witnesses alone. And arguably uh, with Michael Cohen, for example, which is the context in which President Trump was speaking, uh, arguably he didn't even get a cooperation agreement uh, or any kind of uh, he didn't get was he wasn't able to reduce his sentence clearly or uh, by cooperating perhaps because he didn't need to or wasn't credible enough or they had plenty of evidence didn't matter correct. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case. Now, that doesn't mean that that might not change. It's possible that prosecutors will give him a cooperating deal down the road. But at this point, it doesn't appear that he has that kind of arrangement. And that can be for either of the reasons that you just cited, that they believe that he is, his testimony just might not be credible. Um, but more likely, if they don't give him a cooperating deal, it's simply because they don't need it, that they have lots of other evidence and they think they're going to have other witnesses 
who perhaps have less baggage than Michael Cohen, and therefore they don't need his testimony in some future prosecution. Yeah. But a lot of people have been talking uh, today about, you know, the possibilities of impeachment. President Trump also uh, opining on it and saying that the market would crash if he were to be impeached. I'm just wondering, I mean, if we are talking about campaign finance violations, uh, is the issue that we're talking about an impeachable offense? Well, that's a great question. Uh, typically, impeachable offenses involve abuses of a position while somebody is in office. So, for example, uh, President Nixon um, would have been impeached, presumably, over his attempts to interfere with the FBI's investigation into Watergate, and all of that occurred while he was president. Here are the allegations surrounding the campaign finance violations occurred before the president was in office. But if you go back and look at the history of the impeachment clause in the Constitution, um, it, it does refer to uh, a subset of violations which would involve some type of abuse that related to the person getting elected in the first place. So the framers were sensitive not only to abuses that would occur while a an elected official was in office, but also a circumstance in which there was an allegation in which there was some abuse connected with their election to that office in the first place. So it sounds complicated. <laughs> it, it, is, it is complicated, and I think the answer is that this could become something down the road that would be considered an impeachable offense, but we're a long way from that point as we sit here today. Bob Mintz, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Bob Mintz, partner with McCarter in English in Newark, New Jersey. He was a former uh, assistant U.S. attorney as well as assistant counsel to uh, Governor Thomas Keene of New Jersey in the 1990s. Uh, and he was deputy chief of the Organized Crime Strike Force Division for the District of New Jersey. I'm sure there are a lot of fascinating stories, uh, particularly emerging uh, from that division. The U.S. stock market is booming. Bonds are stable, even in the riskier sectors. So what does a distressed debt investor, distressed debt and equity investor do? We're going to ask that to George Schultze. He is head of Schultze Asset Management, and he's been mining uh, the various uh, players out there who might be in distress or just emerging from it to try to find some opportunities. So, George, is this a particularly tough time to be a distressed investor? Well, if you have the flexibility of going long and short up and down the capital structure, it's not, because there are a lot of companies that recently emerged from uh, distress and bankruptcy, especially in the energy and the oil and gas field and the metals and mining field. Um, you know, just a crazy amount of uh, uh, distressed companies there, because it was just really too much leverage in that space. Um, in fact, it was about 20 or 22 percent of the entire high-yield junk-rated debt issuance market for a while. Yeah. And then when commodity prices dropped, a lot of these companies went bankrupt. Now, many of them have come out on the other side with clean balance sheets and a, a much different outlook. Although, I have to think, with so much money out there trying to find any bit of uh, value whatsoever, these companies have had a pretty easy time just uh, absolutely rebounding and getting plenty of capital, no? Well, some of them are smaller, so they're flying a little bit under the radar. They're small caps or mid caps, and some of them are sort of semi-listed or on their way to being listed. Like um, 
For instance, uh, Contour Energy is one that's on the pink sheets. It's about to be listed again on the New York Stock Exchange as soon as it completes its merger with Alpha Natural Resources. That company is extraordinarily cheap. It's a, a coal producer. Um, uh, it, its predecessor, Alpha Natural Resources, came out of bankruptcy in 2016, um, and it had uh, it reduced debt by $8 billion. Um, now the company trades at about two and a half times EBITDA. Uh, it recently paid a $100 million special dividend, and it recently bought back $50 million of stock as well. Yeah. Um, but again, that one's merging, and it's about to be relisted on the New York Stock Exchange when the merger is complete. It trades in the low 70s, but we think it's worth probably $110 or $115 a share. So, so you get these events. It's very yeah. interesting for companies after they emerge. If they remain cheap enough, sometimes you get these catalytic events like special dividends, um, M&A transactions, yeah. or large stock buybacks. And that tends to drive them closer to fair value. So at this time, when the markets are really stable and climbing higher, I have to wonder, are you more long than short? We are still more long than short. And we have not made the call that the market's about to change yet. Uh, a lot of people are saying that you know, the equity market is in uh, the final stages of its bull run. It's been going up, really, since March of 2009. Fewer people are saying that, that though. Honestly, the more that I speak with people, fewer people are saying that we're almost uh, near the end and, and near a crash. And people are saying, yeah, it's six months, 12 yeah. months. Yeah, maybe not that many people are saying it, but, but a lot of people are holding on to cash. They're being cautious. They're chasing lower-risk securities like treasuries and you know, I think there's actually a bubble in the Treasury market. Um, but anyway, we're, we, we, we've had a long run, any way you look at it. It's uh, approaching 3,500 days of appreciation with, uh, without a 20% setback. So it's been a long bull market. Um, with that, you know, the macroeconomic trends are very favorable. But, you know, you can still find very interesting value-oriented equities within the market. And some of them have these event-type catalysts. And I think the distressed market is a perfect place to find them. Okay, so given the fact that we may be a while out yet before we see a market downturn, where are the short positions? I mean, could companies go bust even in this pretty uh, benign time? Well, it's it's harder to short sell well. Um, it takes a special sort of uh, skill set. Um, there are some companies that are extraordinarily overvalued, but you know you're not seeing the events that are driving them closer to bankruptcy yet or, or closer to drop. Uh, one of the things that we do is we short companies headed into trouble like that, and it's a little bit easier because if you know they're going to run out of money at a certain day, and you know that their distressed debt is starting to sell off, then maybe you can time their bankruptcy. And that's a big event on the short side. If you're short selling a company, it eventually goes bankrupt. Um, so we're finding companies in the telecom space. Uh, there's still some companies in the energy space. And then, of course, there's a- Wait, 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 wait. There's still energy companies that didn't go bankrupt in the 2014 downturn that you could see going under? There are. They're few and far between, but some of them kicked the can down the road. You know, they, they, they restructured some of their debt or didn't really restructure their debt or, or made it through somehow. And, and so some of them will definitely still go bankrupt. And when you talk about telecoms, certainly that sector has been uh, leveraging up dramatically, I mean, from frontier to, to dish, uh, when it comes to trying to build out their networks in rural areas, from the case of frontier. When does sort of the road run out there? Well, it's really a function of when the fixed income market stops having an appetite to fund these cash flow negative business plans at, at such an aggressive level. Um, the multiples of debt that you're seeing for some of these old line telecom operators that are really struggling with secular change um, and you know weak cash flow or even negative cash flow 
um, as well as upcoming debt maturities, that's the, the key catalyst. If you get to an upcoming debt maturity and they can't refinance because the fixed income market becomes less hospitable, that's uh, you know a time when you're thinking about a potential bankruptcy. Okay, so I'm looking at Frontier right now. It has more than $17 billion of debt, but it looks like its big maturities don't really start coming due till 2021, 2022. Are there other telecom companies that you're homing in on uh, that have more imminent debt maturities? You know, there are a few, not, none that I want to disclose today on the radio. Um, one, <laughs> one that, uh, you know, one in a different sector that I think is very interesting. Is sort of the, <laughs> You're like, the, I'm not going to give my hand. Yeah, yeah. But there's a different, you know, developing story that, that you guys have covered very well here on Bloomberg uh, with Tesla. <laughs> nice um, pivot. You know, it might be, uh, uh, you know, maybe too many people are focused on it these days, but that's certainly one that's uh, we could talk Tesla. worth following. I'm a little sick of it, but we could talk about <laughs> Tesla. How do you play Tesla at a time when uh, this is a belief-based stock and, and, and debt play? Yeah, so you have to be cautious. And, and you know, it, it, it's been subject to, you know, dramatic and emotional ups and downs uh, based on sleepless. tweets. and Yeah, sleepless ambient nights. And ambient <laughs> <laughs> ambient uh, filled nights. Uh-huh. Uh, so that company it has close to $20 billion in liabilities, including about $11 billion in loans and bonds and capital leases. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very heavy balance sheet. Um, Are you playing in it at all? We, we aren't right now. We have in the past, um, but we'll be looking at it and watching it to see if there's another opportunity to enter the trade. What's, what's um, the opportunity you're looking for? So what we're looking there is uh, for a potential short sale. Um, you know, The company has hired a number of, of investment banks to help with this proposed potential uh, go private transaction. Uh, we think it's actually a lot of hot air, and and uh, a know. lot of people would agree with you. But it's sort of a, we just have about thirty seconds here. But I'm just curious. At what point do you say, all right, now is the time to go in and short? Yeah. So so you have to wait for these sort of emotional market drives, like when you have a tweet or something else that gets people excited beyond reasonableness. And we saw that recently. Um, you know, but 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 interestingly, right now, if the company is looking to raise capital uh, for a potential buyout. You know, the fact that, you know, the CEO is under investigation by the SEC for market manipulation, you know, it makes it much harder to do a transaction like that. And I think that generally would spook most investors. But we shall see how it plays out. Yeah. A lot of the things that you would expect uh, as traditional market behavior doesn't seem to work when it comes to Tesla. George Schulte, thank you so much for being uh, with me today. Uh, Really interesting to hear what you have to say. George Schulte is Chief Executive Officer of Schulte Asset Management. Based in Purchase, New York, he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.